0: johnny tremaine chapter one section three starting on page 14 mr lapham was a fine craftsman his weakness was that he never wrote down what was ordered or even listened very carefully if a patron ordered a sauce boat he would get a fine one perhaps a month after it had been promised sometimes it weighed a little more sometimes a little less than it was supposed to sometimes it had splayed feet when a gadroon edge had been asked for Mrs. Lapham herself had told Johnny he must always be on hand and write down exactly what the order was. This was necessary, but it did seem cheeky to see the 14-year-old boy standing there telling his master what he was supposed to do. Johnny, having started everybody off on his work, even Mr. Lapham, decided to go to the coal house and see if he should order more charcoal. It was such things Mr. Lapham never thought about until too late. There were two basketfuls of charcoal and at least half another scattered over the floor. That was the other boy's fault. Johnny himself was too valuable to carry charcoal. He started to yell for Dusty, thought better of it, and went to work arranging the dirty stuff himself. When he was a master craftsman, he wasn't going to buy charcoal by the basket. He was going to own his own willows, say, out in Milton. That would save, say, twopence a basket. In a year, he began to figure, and he wouldn't take just any boy whose father or mother wanted him to be a silversmith. He'd pick and choose. He saw himself sitting at his bench, his shop crowded with boys, with mothers, boys, with fathers, all begging to be allowed to work for him. He'd not talk to the parents, only to the boys. What church do they go to? King's Chapel? All right. Describe to me at least one piece of silver you see used every Lord's Supper. If they could not answer that, he'd know they hadn't got silver in their blood. But how could he find which boys had nice hands? Johnny! It was Madge's voice that pulled him out of his reverie. He wiped his black hands on his leather breeches and stepped out into the sunlight of the tiny backyard. What is it, my girl? He often thus arrogantly addressed his master's granddaughters, really his own mistresses, Ma sent me. Johnny, it's Mr. Hancock himself. He's in the shop ordering something. Stand by and listen or Grandpa will get it wrong. Dorcas next flung herself upon him, too excited to be elegant. Johnny, hurry, hurry. It's Mr. Hancock. He's ordering her sugar basin. Can't you go faster? Shake a leg. Izana was jumping about him like a wild thing. Help, help, she shrieked. But it was Scylla who thought to offer him her clean apron for a towel as he washed off the charcoal at the yard bump. Oh, but he must hurry. And there was Mrs. Lapham tapping at him from the kitchen window. Slowly he approached the house, the girls chattering about him. Close to the shop door was a tiny African holding a slender gray horse by the bridle. Johnny noted the Hancock arms on the door of the gig. He felt so good he could not help saying to the black child, Mind that horse doesn't trample our flowers. There were no flowers in the Lapham's yard. "'Oh, no,' said Little Jehu, rolling his eyes. "'He thought from the attention this boy was receiving "'from his escorting ladies, he must be a boy of consequence. "'Johnny slipped into the shop so quietly "'that Mr. Hancock did not even look up. "'It was he who owned this great wharf, Mr. Hancock, "'the warehouses, many of the fine ships tied up along it. "'He owned sail lofts and shops and dwelling houses "'standing at the head of the wharf. "'He owned the Lapham House.' He was the richest man in New England. Such a wealthy patron might lift the Laphams from poverty to affluence. Mr. Hancock was comfortably seated in the one armchair which was kept in the shop for patrons. When I'm master, thought Johnny, there are going to be two armchairs and I'll sit in one. Unobtrusively, Johnny got his notebook and pencil. Dub and Dusty were paralyzed into complete inaction. "'Do something,' Johnny muttered to them, "'determined his master's shop should look busy. "'Dusty could not take his eyes off the green velvet coat, "'sprigged white waistcoat, silver buttons and buckles on the great man, "'but he picked up a soldering iron and nervously dropped it. "'And to be done next Monday, a week from today, "'Mr. Hancock was saying, "'I want it as a birthday present to my venerable Aunt Lydia Anne Hancock.' This is the creamer of the set. Only this morning, a clumsy maid melted the sugar basin. I want you to make me a new one. I want it about so high, so broad. Johnny glanced at the delicate, lace-ruffled, gesturing hands, guessed the inches, and wrote it down. Mr. Lapham was looking down at his own gnarled fingers. He nodded and said nothing. He did not even glance at the cream pitcher as Mr. Hancock set it down on a workbench. Johnny's hard, delicate hand, so curiously strong and mature for his age, reached quickly to touch the beautiful thing. It was almost as much by touch as by sight, he judged fine silver. It was indeed old-fashioned, more elaborate than the present mode. The garlands on it were rounded out in reposé work. Mr. Lapham would have to do the reposéing. Johnny hadn't been taught that. He looked at the handle. A sugar basin would have to have two such handles, and they would be larger than the one on the creamer. He'd shape it in wax, make a mold. He had cast hundreds of small things since he had gone to work for Mr. Lapham, but nothing so intricate and beautiful as the woman with folded wings whose body formed the handle. He thought he had never seen anything quite so enchanting as this picture. It must have been the work of one of the great smiths of 40 or 50 years ago. Although he had not intended to address Mr. Hancock, he had said before he thought, John Coney, sir? Mr. Hancock turned to him. He had a handsome face, a little worn as though either his health was bad or he did not sleep well. Look at the mark, boy. Johnny turned it over, expecting to see the familiar rabbit of the great Mr. Coney. Instead, there was a pellet, and L, and a pellet. Your master made that creamer 40 years ago. He made the entire set. You made it? He had never guessed that there had been a time when Mr. Lapham could do such beautiful work. At last, Mr. Lapham raised his protuberant eyes. I remember when your uncle, Mr. Thomas Hancock, sir, ordered that set. Make it big and make it handsome. He said, bigger and handsomer than anything in Boston. As big and handsome as my lady is, make it as rich as I am. John Hancock laughed. That is just the way my uncle used to talk. He was so sure of his own good breeding, he could laugh affectionately at the rich, quick vulgarities of the uncle who had adopted him and from whom he had inherited his fortune. He stood up, a tall, slender man who stooped as he stood and walked. The fine clothes seemed a little pathetic. "'he had a soft voice and low. "'But you have not as yet said "'whether or not you can make my sugar basin for me "'and have it done by Monday next. "'Of course, I thought first of you "'because you made the original, "'but there are other silversmiths "'perhaps you would rather not undertake. "'Mr. Lapham was in a study. "'I've got the time, the materials, and the boys to help. "'I can get right at it, but honestly, sir,' "'I don't know. Perhaps I haven't got the skill any more. I've not done anything so fine for thirty years. I'm not what I used to be, and—' Although neither of the two men could see the door leading from the hall into the shop, Johnny could. There was Mrs. Lapham in her morning apron.' her face purple with excitement and all four girls crowded about her listening gesturing at johnny say yes all five faces big and little mouthed at him yes 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 so they had forgotten morning prayers had they wanted him to take charge we can do it mr hancock bless me Exclaimed, exclaimed the gentleman not accustomed to apprentices who settled matters while their masters pondered yes sir and you shall have it delivered at your own house a week from today, seven o'clock Monday morning, and it's going to be exactly, just exactly right. Mr. Lapham looked at Johnny gratefully. Certainly, sir. I'm humbly grateful for your August, august patronage. He was not a proud man. He was relieved that Johnny had stepped in and settled matters. Mr. Hancock bowed and turned to go, but none of the boys thought to run ahead and open the door for him, So Mrs. Lapham, apron and all, barged in, her red arms bare to the elbow, her felt slippers flapping at her bare heels, and did or overdid the courtesies for them all. Hardly was the door closed, than there was a rap on it. Little Jehu came mincing in a glitter of bright colors. He solemnly laid three pieces of silver on the nearest bench and recited his piece. "'My master, Mr. John Hancock, Esquire, bids me leave these coins.' one for each of the poor workboys, hoping they will drink his health and be diligent at their benches. Then he was gone, hoping they will vote for him when they are grown up and have enough property. Don't you ever vote for Mr. Hancock, sir, asked Johnny. I never do. I don't hold much with these fellows that are always trying to stir up trouble between us in England. Maybe English rule ain't always perfect, but it's good enough for me. Fellows like Mr. Hancock and Sam Adams calling themselves patriots and talking too much, not reading God's word like their parents did, which tells us to be humble. But he is my landlord and I don't say much. Johnny was not listening. He sat with the pitcher in his hand to think the poor, humble old fellow once had been able to make things like that. Well, he was going to turn the trick again before he died, even if Johnny had to stand over him and make him. Chapter one section four page twenty the sun stood directly overhead pressing its heat down upon the town as though it held an enormous brass basin. There was not wind enough to take a catboat from Hancock's wharf to Nottle Island. In the lapham shop windows and doors were left open to catch what breeze might come up the wharf, but there wasn't any breeze. Old mister Lapham had worked well in the morning. He said if Johnny could do the handles, he himself could get the basin done in time. But after dinner, he had gone down to the old willow behind the coal house, put a basket over his head, and gone to sleep. Dove and Dusty had, therefore, left to go swimming. Johnny was making out of wax an exact replica of the pitcher handle, only enlarging it. He tried again and again, never quite satisfied with his work, but confident that he could do it. It was long past dinner hour when he crossed the entry into into the kitchen. The fire was out. The table cleared except for his place. Scylla had evidently been left to wait on him whenever he felt like eating. The success of Mr. Hancock's order was so dependent upon him. No one would scold him today because he chose to be an hour late. Johnny took his seat and Scylla put down the slate she had been drawing on. She gave him a piece of cold meat pie, a flat loaf of rye bread, dried apples, and ran down cellar to fetch him a flagon of cold ale. He drank the ale and then more leisurely began on the pie. With hardly a word, Silla went back to the settle where Izana was sprawled and picked up her slate. She drew very well. It would be just about nothing, Johnny thought, to teach that girl to write. "'She's doing it for you, Johnny,' Izana said at last. "'What are you doing for me, Sill? She's designing you a beautiful mark, so when you are man-grown and master smith, you can stamp your silver with it. I've five more years to go. No matter how good my work may be, I have to mark it with your grandpa's old pellets and L's. Johnny's forgotten morning prayers and all those wonderful humble people, said Scylla. Look, I've got your J and T sort of entwined. Too hard to read. Then, too... He could not imagine why he came out with this secret. When I'm Master Smith, I'm going to use all three of my initials. All three? J L T. Neither of the girls had ever heard of a poor working boy with three names. You're not making up, Cilla asked, almost respectfully. I've heard tell folks with three names, but I never saw one before. Look at me, my girl. He got up to go back to the shop. Wait, Johnny, what is that middle name? It begins with L. As far as you are concerned, it ends with L too. I'll bet it's something so awful you are ashamed of it like Ladybug or Leapfrog. I'll bet it's lamentable. Johnny grinned, untempted by her insults. In the shop, it was so hot he could not handle the wax. The solitude in which he worked depressed him a little. For the first time, he was afraid he could not get the handles right. All the shops had stopped work because of the heat. He could hear the other boys running and splashing, diving off the wharf into the cold water. He locked the shop. Now even Mr. Lapham would have to ask him if he wanted to get in, and he ran off to swim. Later after sunset, he could get on with the, mold, the model, even if he had to work by lamplight. Section 5 When at last he blew out his lamp, Johnny had made an exact replica of the winged woman, only larger. He looked at it and knew that it was not, for some reason, quite right. Instead of going up to the attic to sleep, he crossed into the kitchen and got an old mattress. The clock struck midnight and he was asleep. He woke and it was still dark night. Someone was in the room with him and he thought of thieves. "'Who's there?' he yelled roughly. "'It's me, Johnny.' I wasn't going to wake you up if you were already asleep, but... What's wrong, Scylla? Johnny, it's Azana. She's sick again. What does her mother say? Scylla began to cry. I don't want to tell her. She'd just say poor baby wasn't worth raising. Johnny was tired. At the moment, he had a sneaking sympathy with Mrs. Lapham's point of view. What seems to be wrong? She's so hot. She says if she can't get a breath of air, she'll throw up this was a very old but dire threat. There might be a little down at the end of the wharf. Fetch her down. Seemed it was always like this. Whenever things went wrong and he was tired, Scylla was after him to help her nurse Izana. Nevertheless, he carried her in his thin, strong arms. She was a tiny child for eight. The whitey gold hair that he secretly admired so much got into his mouth and he wished she was bald. Izana giggled. On one side of the deserted wharf were warehouses, on the other were ships. Not a person was abroad except themselves. The child grew heavier and heavier. Want to walk now, Azana? You'd be cooler walking. I like to ride. Well, just so you are satisfied. Johnny, said Silla crossly, are you being sarcastic to baby? Yes. How do you feel, dear? I feel like I'm going to throw up. Oh, you get down then, said Johnny. That settles it but he carried her to the very end of the wharf. Suddenly, he felt cool fingers of air lifting the wet fair hair on his forehead. The perspiration under his arms dripping down his chest evaporated and the prickly sensation was delightful. Izana cried, the wind, the wind, blow, wind, blow. It did not blow, but flowed over them and cooled them. The three sat in a row, their feet dangling over the water below. They sat well apart at first with arms outstretched, soaking themselves in the freshness of the sea air. For a long time, they sat and said nothing. Then Azana put her head in Scylla's lap. Scylla leaned against Johnny. The two girls were almost asleep. Johnny was wide awake. Johnny, murmured Azana, tell us a story. I don't know any. Johnny, said Scylla, tell us the story of your middle name. It isn't a story, it's just a fact. What is it? Although by daytime, and if Scylla had teased him, he never would have told. The darkness of the night, the remoteness of the place where they sat, an affection he felt for the girls and they for him, made everything seem different. After a long pause, he said, It is light. So you are really John Light Tremaine? No, my baptized Bible name is Jonathan I've always been called Johnny. That's the way my papers were made out to your grandpa. I am Jonathan Light Tremaine. Why, that's just like Merchant Light. Just like. You don't suppose you're related? I do suppose, but I don't know. Light's not a common name, and we are both Jonathan. Of course, I've thought about it some when I see him rolling around in his coach strutting about with his laces and gold-headed canes, but I don't aim ever to think about too much, too much about it. Izana was almost asleep. Tell more, Johnny, she murmured. Merchant Light is so very rich. How rich? Like Mr. Hancock? Not quite. Almost. He's so rich, gold and silver are like dust to him. You mean at Light Mansion, Mrs. Light sweeps up gold and silver in a dustpan? Mrs. Light doesn't sweep, you silly, not with her own fair hands. For one thing, she's dead, and for another, if she weren't, she'd just snap her fingers and maids would come running in frilly starched caps. They'd curtsy and squeak, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and if it please you, ma'am. Then Mrs. Light would say, you dirty sluts, look at that gold dust under the bed. I could write my name in the silver dust on the mirror over that mantel. That sure mops and rags, you bow leg across eye chattering monkeys. Diamonds, too. To clean up diamonds, they need brooms. Oh, Johnny, tell more. Once the rubies spilled, and the cook, a monstrous fine woman, I've seen her, thought they were currants. She put them in a fruit cake, and Merchant Light broke a front tooth on one. A fact, Johnny? Well, it's a fact that Merchant Light's got a broken front tooth. I saw it as I stood watching him, Scylla said. You watch him much? He answered a little miserably. It's just like I can't help it. I don't mean ever to think of him, Izana murmured. What do they do with their pearls? They drink their pearls. What? Like a queen of Egypt, my mother told me of before she died. She drank her pearls in vinegar just to show off. That Lavinia light is always showing off, too. Izana was asleep. You never speak of your mother, Johnny. She hadn't been dead more than a few weeks when you first came here. You never talked about her at all. Was that because you liked her so much, or not at all? There was a long pause. Liked her so much, he said at last. We had been living at Townsend, Maine. She got a living for us both by sewing. But when she knew she had to die, she had death inside of her and she knew it. She wanted me taught, skilled work, and all I wanted was to be a silversmith. That's why we came to Boston, so as to get me a proper master. She could still sew, but she coughed all the time. Even when she was so weak she could hardly hold a needle, she kept on and on teaching me reading and writing and all that. She was determined I shouldn't grow up untaught, like Dub and Dusty. She wanted me to be something. That's why you work so hard? That's why. Mrs. Lapham promised your grandpa would take me on just as soon as she was buried. She died, and he did. That's all. What was her name, and how come she, a poor sewing woman, was so well learned? Round about here, she just called herself. She called herself just Mrs. Tremaine, but she was born Lavinia Light. She came of gentlefolk. Just like Mr. Light's daughter. Yes, she told me once that for over a hundred years, lights have favored Jonathan and Lavinia as names. Johnny, didn't she ever go to those rich relatives and say, Here I am? No, she told me not to, ever. Unless, only if I got to the end of everything, she'd say, Johnny, If there is not one thing left for you and you have no trade and no health and God himself has turned away his face from you, then go to Merchant Light and show him your cup and tell him your mother told you before she died that you are kin to him. He will know the kinship, she said, and in pity he may help you. Your cup? She said I wasn't to sell it ever. I was to go hungry and cold first. Where is your cup? In my sea chest in the attic. That's why I keep it locked. Will you show me your cup? If you swear by your hope of heaven and your fear of hell, never, never to mention any of this to anyone, never tell my true name, nor that I have a cup. But Azana, if she's heard anything, she'll think it was a story I made up, like those rubies in the fruitcake. Now it was close to morning. Far off a cock crew, nearby another answered. The dawn breeze came up from off the sea, and the black night turned gray. Scylla was shivering and stood up. Johnny shouldered his Anna. Chapter 1, Section 6, page 29. He kept his word to Scylla, and as he was putting the little girl back to bed, He slipped to the attic, unlocked his chest, and brought down the cup in the flannel bag his mother had made. He opened the door from the shop to the wharf. Although still dark inside the house, outside it was growing lighter and lighter. Gulls flew in from the islands looking for food. Scylla joined him and he motioned her to follow him out into the twilight of the new day. He drew his cup from its bag. As a small child, he had thought it was the most beautiful thing in the world. It was the reason why he had begged his mother to apprentice him to a silversmith, and there was none in Townsend, Maine. Now he was more critical of the cup. He thought it too chunky. On one side was engraved the crest of the lights. This was an eye rising up from the sea. From its rays of light or lashes streamed out, half covering the surface of the cup. It was this emblem Merchant Light had on everything he owned, carved above his counting house on Long Wharf, engraved on all his silver, even on dog collars and harnesses. Miss Laminia had it stamped on her Spanish leather gloves. Johnny knew it was cut on the slate gravestones of the Light family on Cobb's Hill. The same as his, said Scylla in wonder, and the same motto, look. She read the words in her halting manner, Let there be light. And miraculously, as she stumbled over these words, there was light, for the sun came up out of the sea. The children stood and looked at each other. The girl's face showed her excitement and her fatigue. It was a pointed, sweet little face, her eyes a lighter brown than Azana's, and her hair not so strikingly pale. Johnny whispered, just like the sun coming up yonder out of the sea, pushing rays of light ahead of it. Scylla, evidently thinking Johnny was getting beyond himself, said, might it not just as well be a setting eye? It was the first sour remark she had made to him all the night. No, no, my mother said is a rising eye. But I was to keep Whist and Mom about it unless even God has turned away his face. And Scylla, you promised by my hope of heaven, and my fear of hell.